Let's turn now to the Lord in prayer. Our great God, we do give you praise for the Savior that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the great King who came humbly, that he took on our very flesh, and even in that flesh, continued to humble himself so that we would not have taken notice of him, that he was but a peasant uh, in our own world, that he came in complete humility, and in that humility and that weakness, or what we perceive to be weakness, he attained a great victory, power over death itself upon that cross, the removal of our sins, the transferring to us his righteousness, of bringing uh, the demise of death itself so that there will be that day in which death will be no more. Oh, what a Savior we have. We worship him and praise him and exalt him. We give you thanks, our God, that you would do such great work. He would give his life to such as we are. That though we are been made in your image, yet it is a fallen image because of our own sin. Though even now that we have been made new creatures in Christ, yet we continue to sin, and we confess this to our own shame. There are many things that we continue to do that we ought not to do. We transgress your law. We fail to live up to uh, the law's standards. There's so much good that was there for us to do, and we failed to do it. And so we must confess this to you, and it shames us that we must confess this to you every week when we gather to worship. And yet all the more it leads us to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ, to tremble at your, your grace and your mercy because we come Sunday after Sunday yet still as your children. You call us your sons. You call us your daughters. We have not been cut off from you. And all because of that work done on that cross, once and for all, sufficient for our sins. And all the more than we pray for your Holy Spirit to continue to do that work of sanctification in us. That we may by our lives give testimony to the work of your Spirit in us. To, to change us into new creatures. To become more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we lift before you prayers on behalf of this world and for ourselves. We pray for a world that continues to just seem to grow more and more violent. And we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to bring peace where there is so much violence in this world. We pray for the work of your Spirit to protect your people those who call upon your name yet live in lands where they are persecuted simply because they do call upon their Lord Jesus. We pray for you to protect their lives, to protect their homes, their families, to protect their livelihood. For churches, that we pray that you protect their very buildings. And we pray, though our Father, to keep them ever faithful unto you, 
for what a testimony that they are to us. For those who have counted the cost of following their Lord and and continue to do that, whatever the cost may be. May we all the more be committed unto you. We pray, our Father, for those whom you have sent from among us into other parts of the world, or even those whom you have raised up in churches in other lands that even have come to this land. For those who have left their homes, left their cultures, their families, all that has been comfortable to them, so that they may carry forth the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. Pray that you uplift them, sustain them, protect them from the evil one, that many will be brought into your kingdom because of their labors. We pray, our Father, for our own people. We lift up our needs. We confess before you that we are a needy people, that we are helpless without you. We pray for those who mourn, and we lift up our sister Anna Williams and her daughter Faith as they mourn the death of Rudy Williams. We thank you that we can still, even though we may grieve, yet it is not without hope, and that we know that he is with his Lord even now. We pray for those who are facing uh, grave illnesses, who endure uh, chronic pain, And we pray for your mercies upon them to sustain them, that you may even bring healing to them, that you would ever comfort them and keep their faith strong and their hope in their Lord Jesus and use us all the more to to show forth the love of Christ and to be instruments of, of comfort and of real help in coming to those in their times of need. And then we pray, Our Father, right here in in this sanctuary. You know each one who is here. You know what has been going on in our lives, what has gone on in our hearts, what's in our very thoughts, even at this moment. And we, we look to you as little children to feed us, to care for us, uh, to, to keep us along the right path, uh, to comfort us when we need that comfort, convict us when we need it. We pray that you would feed us even now as we would open your word, that we may ever grow stronger in our faith in our Lord Jesus and our knowledge of you, that you will feed us as well through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, so that all the more that we would continue to grow in sanctification and honor our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, if you will turn with me in your Bibles, uh, we're going to be looking at Luke uh, chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. If you're using the, um, the Bibles that are in your chairs, you'll find that on page 732. And then you'll also see the text as an insert uh, in your bulletin as well. And the translation I'm preaching from is from the one that's uh, in that insert you want to follow along. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you, have you ever felt helpless? Now, I, I don't mean helpless in, like I feel helpless trying to figure out these electronic gadgets and finally have to call my, my son-in-law, or when I really feel helpless and I'm talking to someone on customer service and... and I'll, I'll just not go there. 
But have you, have you felt helpless? You really want to help someone that you love. And you do not have the power to do so. Well, that's our Father's dilemma in this story today. Let me begin reading with verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now Jesus, he has returned to the area where he had been teaching before he had gone out across the, the lake. And we talked about that storm. And he had then crossed over the, side, over the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he's, he's come back to the same place. And he is, he's a celebrity now. Crowds, they get word, they maybe see the boat coming, and they all get word, and they come out there to meet him. And then there follows the most pitiable scene. A father falls at Jesus' feet, pleading for the life of his daughter. Let's consider who this man is. Now, his name is Jairus, and he's described as a ruler of the synagogue. Now, a synagogue is the equivalent to a, to a local Christian church. Now, it's only in the temple in Jerusalem that Jews could offer sacrifices unto God. Okay? But wherever they lived, they could gather together uh, to have local worship and, and prayer services. Now, Jairus is, is a ruler. And what his, his capacity was is that he was probably the one in charge of the worship services. He's the one who made sure that everything was needed, uh, that whoever the, the preacher was that day had everything that he needed, and, and probably everything had to be approved uh, by him. So he had a position of high responsibility, and consequently one of high dignity. Now he would also, because of that position, he would be a representative of the religious establishment, of the authorities. Now, I had mentioned that when Jesus came back, he's a big celebrity. Everybody loves him. Everybody's gathering around him. Having said that, he is still viewed with suspicion by the religious authorities for a number of reasons. One, he was, he was overly familiar with, with what were called sinners. Okay, he seemed to pile around with them. He worked on the Sabbath day. That is, he, he actually healed on the Sabbath day. He had presumptuously forgiven a man of his sins. And just other things like that, that the religious readers and leaders are saying, something's not right about this guy. Now, I don't know what Jairus' attitude had been toward Jesus. I mean, very likely, Jesus had actually taught in his synagogue. Most of Jesus' teaching, by the way, was done in synagogues. But whatever his attitude had been, all of that is put aside now. His daughter, his only daughter, is dying. Now note what he does. He, he falls at Jesus' feet. He must have broken his way through the crowds and fell at his feet. He's lying prostrate before Jesus before this questionable rabbi. 
And he implores Jesus to come to his house. Other translations has he pled with him or, or he begged him to come. So he's speaking to Jesus with great intensity. This is the man who, whose permission was needed for anyone to come speak in his synagogue. He is pleading before Jesus at his feet publicly to come to his house. Now, why this intensity? What, why is he humbling himself so much? Well, every father in this, in this sanctuary knows why. Now, we men care very much about our pride, okay? I mean, we go through pain, trials, all that stuff. We cannot handle humiliation, okay? We do not, can't do that. But when you put the life of a child on the line, and especially that of a daughter, then we'll let humiliation go wherever it wants to go. And this girl's about 12 years of age. She's a small, young child. But actually in that culture, she's on the verge of, of adulthood. She, in fact, could be married at that age. Well, let's read now. Let's continue. After I've said that, let's go on here to what's considered kind of the interruption that takes place on the way to Jesus going to Jairus' house. We're still in verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, I assume you pick up on how long that woman had had her illness. 12 years. The same as the age of this little girl. And continue on, verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds around you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now I want you to note two things in that last verse, in verse 48. One is that Jesus points out the critical role of faith. Your faith has made you well. And then do you notice how he addressed her? As daughter. That's the same term used in reference to that little girl. See how these stories are kind of starting to, to blend in together. Well, that little episode takes place. And then verse 49 While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Now imagine the feelings of the father. You know, no doubt there at the beginning he was first annoyed when Jesus stopped, you know, trying to find out who had touched him. He's got to be thinking, my daughter is dying. But then he must have been heartened. When he sees that the woman is, is miraculously healed. And he goes, okay, 
Well, I have come to the right guy. He, he can heal. There is still hope. And then the news comes. It's too late. His daughter has died. And surely he must be thinking, if only he had not stopped. He had not paused. And then we read in verse 20, I mean verse 50. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Now, when I'm reading this, what Jesus first says to him seems like an odd phrase. Do not fear. I mean, fear what? I would have thought he would have said, do not, do not grieve. I mean, fear is what the father had been feeling when he was rushing and trying to get Jesus to come. He was fearing his daughter's death, but she's died. I remember reading a, a C.S. Lewis book, A Grief Observed which is about how his own feelings when his wife had died. And he starts off like this. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the, the yawning. I keep on swallowing so what's happening here, what had happened to Lewis, what's happening to the father is the fear is realized. One has entered into that unknown of what it's going to be like, and it's, it's frightening. And then he says, only believe. Now that's the same word, it's the same Greek word used when, about the woman's faith. When she, so when he says, believe it's the same thing that he had commended that woman for. So we can see the importance of faith here. And then he notes that she will be well. Now again, this is the, it's the same Greek word that Jesus said had to, to that woman when he said, your faith has made you well. Now for those of you, if you're reading the NIV, you'll notice that it, it uses the term heal instead of well. You, you, you will be healed or you have been healed. Uh, those of you with uh, the King James Version, you'll see it says, made whole. And then those of you who are true followers of, of Dr. Barton, and you did get your New American Standard Version Bible, the text reads, um, it reads well, but the footnote says, save. And, when you, when you, and that is really the closest meaning of that word, is to save. And so what, he, what he's saying here is that that woman was saved from her disease and the girl will be saved, in this case, from death. Okay. So as all, we're still getting there to the house and they move on. Verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and, and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Now let me kind of give the scenario here. Jesus was not walking into kind of a quietly grieving home, and people are talking in, in hush voices. Okay. It's packed. It's packed with family, no doubt, and neighbors, but also with professional mourners. It's people you pay to come in 
and, and weep and, and wail, and, and it's loud. He mentions flute players, and these are musicians coming in, and they're playing music, going along with that weeping. In fact, Mark records Jesus saying, why are you making such a commotion? Okay. Now, we know from the other Gospels, from Matthew and Mark, Jesus gets all these folks out of the house. He orders them out. Maybe just so he can think and just have a moment of peace. Now, I want you to note their response to him. I mean, they laugh at him. And that indicates one thing. One thing, it indicates how surface their mourning is. You know, hey, we're professionals. (laughs) We're doing our job. And, you know, they're not really grieving. But also what it indicates is, yes, these professionals, no doubt, when they're around it. This is, this is what they do. This child has died. So continue on verse 54. But taking her, the child, by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And this is a miracle. I think you agree with me. It occurs so effortlessly. that You, you kind of wonder if, if Jesus wasn't in earnest. You know, when he said, well, she's just merely sleeping. Maybe she was, you know. But, she, but Luke uses that phrase about her spirit returned. And what it indicates is that Luke is saying, no, this girl had died. The Spirit came back to her. I am recording here a miracle of Jesus bringing a dead person to life. And that's the story. Now, I want to go back to the opening of the sermon. And I ask that question. Have you ever felt helpless? You want to help a loved one, but you lack the power. And I'm sure no one here could have said no. You might be thinking of a loved one who who is sick now. And you can't do anything about it. You can't heal her or or him. You can't can't even really make him feel better. It might be a loved one who was dying and died and you could not save him. It may be a child who, who has strayed away. Is ruining his or her life and you can't make them see what they are doing. You're, you're helpless. And the illustrations are many. But that common theme is that, is that feeling of helplessness. That's the story of the father. He's a man in, in high position. People answer to him. His very job is to make things go right for his, his synagogue. It's kind of the job that I had. Before I, before I came here, I was an executive minister of this large church. I was a problem solver. You come to me, I help you, and I solve the problem. Here was a problem he could not solve. More to the point, here was the apple of his eye withering away before him, about to die, and he could do nothing to stop it. Now, no doubt he had brought in, he had to bring in whatever physicians he could find, but nothing could be done. Now, you fathers know what you would have done if you had the power. You would have taken that child's place gladly. You'd gladly bear that deadly disease, and you would even die contentedly. 
And we know Jairus would have done the same. But he lacks the power. He can't make that kind of transfer. He's got to do what is even the harder task. He has to just watch. Unable to do anything. And then you know how he felt when that ray of hope appears. Jesus is coming. He's coming back from wherever he's been. And he rushes down there. The teacher has returned. That one who who can heal anyone. And he he finally comes. And and then again, we know the rest of the story. And there is a happy ending. Now here's my real question for the text. Jesus is not here in the flesh. What now? Why am I being told a story that cannot happen for me? I can't go find him out there. I can't bring him here to take care of it all. Now, today, there are stories of miraculous healings. We can even think of one in our own church just recently. We can think of loved ones being saved, uh, others who seemed hopelessly lost and they came back to the Lord. And there are also stories of loved ones dying. Even of godly loved ones suffering who never experienced relief. There are loved ones who died young. Or maybe they were in the midst of fruitful labor and we can't think, why that person? Why did they die? What then? What does this story do other than to make our helplessness feel all the more acute? Or the the question, and this is the question that plagued me, if anything were to tempt me from leaving the ministry, it was this one. It was, what good is faith? I mean, I I understand it attains my salvation, but afterwards, what good is faith if it doesn't really get me anything? It doesn't deliver my loved ones from from suffering. It doesn't help me when I I call upon the Lord and, and I don't see the prayer answered. What good is a prayer made in faith when it will not bring my loved ones to faith. And so a passage like this only mocks the, the lack of the miraculous in my experience. And then one day I found my answer. But I was preaching this text. And, and I was going through Mark and I, and, I, and I came to the one where he tells the, the, the woman, your faith has made you well. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I've got I to preach on this. I'm not sure I even believe it. And so going through my Bible, and oh yeah, there's that chapter in Hebrews 11 where these men and women of faith, and they do all these great things. I'm reading it, I'm getting depressed. Because they're saying, let's see, their faith, they, they did all these wonderful things. And then you come to this passage, Hebrews 11, verses 32 to 40. And the writer's saying, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I'm just getting more depressed. This stuff's not happening in my life. And then it goes on. Some were tortured, 
refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Well, that's not victorious. And then he says in verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking about this. you, you got people of faith who conquered. And then there are people who were conquered. There were people raised from the dead. There were people who tortured, who died painfully, and they were not resurrected. But all were commended through their faith. So what is that common element? What is it that faith gives, that provides? What were they being commended for? And it's really, it's just like one of these, yeah, the answer came. They remain faithful. That's what faith is good for, to keep us faithful to our God. When you think about this, you're on your deathbed, got your loved ones around, what what do you want to be able to say? You know, because of my faith, everything went my way. My God did, did everything I asked for. I did not have to suffer. I did not see my loved ones suffer. Or do you want to be able to say this? I have faced many good things, and I have faced the bad. I have borne trials that I could not understand. But through it all, I remain faithful to my God. Isn't it that latter thing that really gives you a true sense of dignity, of accomplishment, that I remain faithful isn't what you really want to hear when you open your eyes and, and there is your Lord? Don't you want to really want him to hear him saying, Well done, good and faithful servant? That's what faith is for. But then there's another question How can I remain faithful when I see when I don't see anything really happening through my faith? You know, I, I can't do any miracles. I, yeah, I remember Jesus going to his hometown and, and it says there that the people weren't very believing and all that Jesus could do was just heal a few people. And I've always thought, I'd take that, that I could just heal just a few people. I'd be pleased with that. But I hadn't seen anyone healed by my touch. Well, we can know this. We can be faithful because of the miraculous signs that Jesus accomplished when he was here in the flesh and it could be seen. And now we're coming to the reason for Jesus' miracles and and why this story of the father with his daughter and, and this other woman is included in there. How can I have faith that all will be well? That my loved one who died in faith is now with his or her Lord. How can I know that? How can I really know that there is an inheritance awaiting me and that I will receive it in the end? 
How do I know that God really is working out all things for the good? I can know because Christ has demonstrated the power of God and the compassion of God. He came in the flesh to represent. He is the image of God. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You see me do my works of power. I'm doing the works of the power of God my Father. The compassion I have is the compassion of God the Father. He has the power over death. And so when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We can believe him. We can trust that he is able and willing to fulfill his promise. When he says that he goes to prepare a place for us and that he will return and take us there, we can trust him. Our Lord, whose power healed a woman who was sick for 12 years, who raised a 12-year-old girl, or for that matter, who healed everyone who came to him, who never failed to accomplish any miracle of healing or bringing back to life or, or casting out demons, whatever it was. Our Lord, who acted always out of mercy because of his love, our Lord can be trusted for what we cannot see. When he tells us what we can't see, we can believe him because of what he accomplished here on this earth for all to see. And it is that trust that really pleases him. You remember Thomas, doubting Thomas? Well, I'm not going to believe that he's risen from the dead and unless I can put my finger right there and, and see him and touch him and, and all that. And, and Jesus appears and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, have, have you believed because you have seen me? And now he's thinking of us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so he says to us now, Blessed are those who have not seen miracles with their eyes, but nevertheless they believe in me. Nevertheless they trust me. They trust me to do what is right. To do what is good. To do whatever, to do what matters most. That I will lead them safely into my Father's arms. And that is the Father who is never helpless. Let's pray. Thank you, our great God, that you are never helpless. And that you call us daughter. You call us son. Because we are your children. And you have the compassion to, to heal us, to do whatever is needed for us, always to do what is good for us. And we can trust you. We have seen your son here upon this earth. His power has been displayed. His compassion and mercy has been displayed and is definitely displayed there upon the cross. And so again, may we all the more trust you. Trust you by faith. Trust what we cannot see. Knowing that nevertheless it is real. Knowing that death is not the end of all things. Death itself shall die. Death is but the threshold to that time in which we will no longer have faith, that we will see our Lord and experience fully is what it is to know our God 
who lives with us. In our Lord's name we pray. Amen.